Hi everyone, it's Raghu Marcus, back with Mind Rolling, and I have a fascinating and a wonderful guest today, Joel Salinas. Welcome, Joel. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, Joel has a new book called Mirror Touch, and a really, really fascinating uh, read, everybody. By the way, you can all go to our BeHereNowNetwork.com and our Amazon portal, and you can uh, copy and paste that and go up there and buy Joel's book through our affiliate, which helps us out at the network and, of course, uh, helps you because this is a uh, a book that uh, is very unique, very unique. So I'm going to get right into Seneth. See, I can't <laughs> even... We went through pronouncing this... <laughs> Which is uh, the mirror touch synesthesia? synesthesia. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mispronounced it all over the place when I first learned the word. Yeah, and this, you know, it's, it's like impossible. Them, there's, there's actually an a in the middle of the word, so you mispronounce it like synesthesia. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so it's uh, synesthesia, like anesthesia, but uh-huh. synesthesia. So the, synesthesia. The term, it's a, uh, it's an umbrella term essentially, uh, where the the word comes from the roots sin and esthesia so sin meaning together and esthesia meaning sensation so it's kind of like bringing senses or sensations together um and essentially people who have synesthesia their their senses are are, are blended so they may experience colors with sounds or uh, tastes with textures or shapes with tastes and it can be all sorts of really exotic combinations and a lot of the research that in the area has shown that the brains of people who have synesthesia, called they're called synesthetes, uh, their brain um, areas of the senses are actually more wired together and also tend to kind of activate uh, together um, usually. Uh, so if I, if I were to hear a sound, for example, and I have sound color synesthesia, the sound hearing part of my brain activates, but also the vision part of my brain activates. And so that creates this perception of, of uh maybe like a blue color with, with an E note, for example. Um, and then when it comes to um, the, the whole population, about four out of 100 people actually have some form of synesthesia. Um, and it's typically found in artists and musicians, um, people like Stevie Wonder, Billy Joel, Tori Amos, Skrillex, Lord, um, Kanye West, all these people have some form of synesthesia. And, and Jimi uh, Hendrix, let's not forget him. Yeah, I mean, that's right. From... <laughs> If he didn't have, I mean, you know, I'd be shocked if he didn't, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Just his lyrics to say it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Vladimir Nabokov also had it. He described uh, his letter S as a curious mixture of Azure and Mother of Pearl. Uh, uh, for me, the letter uh, S is kind of this like uh, yellow, uh, orangish kind of squash color. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so synesthesia can be any of those combinations of the different senses. Uh, But when it comes to the combination of vision and touch, um, there's actually one type of synesthesia, which I happen to have as well, is called mirror touch synesthesia. Mm. So uh, for uh, all of us, uh, when we see people moving or being touched or in pain, uh, not only is the vision part of our brain becoming active, but also the touch part of our brain becomes active. And it's almost like creating a 3D virtual reality simulation in our minds of whoever we're looking in front of us. And it's believed that this mechanism that we all have is a part of 
kind of the fundamentals of empathy, of trying to understand what other people are thinking and feeling. And, uh, and it, it's, for the most part, it's unconscious, meaning uh, we don't know it's happening. Every once in a while, that crosses the threshold into consciousness. So, for example, if you're watching a football game and somebody suddenly gets tackled or someone falls <laughs> and hits their face, that cringe feeling you get, as if you, it happened to you, that's, that's that it. mirroring network right. uh, that's involved. But for two out of 100 people who have mirror touch synesthesia, those brain areas that are involved are larger and more active. And so this mirroring experience is conscious essentially all the time. And what's even more fascinating is that uh, we all have areas in our brain that help us to tell the difference between our physical bodies and the physical body of the people that we look at. But in people who have mirror touch synesthesia, those brain areas are smaller and less active. So this mirroring network is extremely heightened where the boundary is blurred between, between yourself and other people. Mm. And then it gets a little weirder uh, where <laughs> there, there's uh, uh, even rarer cases where the boundary is blurred not just between the self uh, and other people, but between the self and anything that is not the self. And that's um, actually the, my case. And I talk about that in, in the book. There actually isn't a formal name for it. Um, it's, it's so rare, but I'm sure there are other cases like it. But the experience, I, I, I describe it, it's similar to that sense of oneness with the universe that people describe in mystical or religious experiences, mm. or, or even in drug-induced states. Um, people who are on um, using LSD, for example, re report a lot of these same experiences of mixing of the senses, but also this sense of oneness mm. with the world around them. And it's um, it's uh, deeply rooted in kind of the brain's mechanisms. I mean, the first case of Meritut synesthesia was only reported in 2005. Oh, really? That was my first oh. year in medical school. But over the course of a decade, there's been so much that's been learned uh, about it, um, mm. including the brain findings that I mentioned that, yeah. that might be kind of playing uh, under it. Yeah, I, I should mention to everybody, uh, Joel is a doctor, of course. Uh, you gathered that through uh, just how he speaks about this with such <laughs> knowledge. Uh, but Harvard trained and a clinical researcher and neurologist at Mass General in Boston, where he specializes in brain health and social epidemiology, neuropsychiatry, and cognitive behavior. Neuro neurology, which is uh, a bunch of incredible <laughs> stuff, Joel. But, the, but you know, I'm reading that. I mean, so it's one thing, you know, you kind of grasp it, as you say, like if you're watching a football game and somebody gets really plowed and you, oh, you know, you do that, mm -hmm, and you, mm -hmm. you react um, empath empathetically. But this is different when I read that you went, I think this may have been one of your first experiences as an intern, I believe, at a hospital, and you went in, and there was somebody who came in with heart failure, was it not? And um, uh, I think it was a heart attack, and you started f actually uh, experiencing the symptoms. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. that. That's way beyond, I mean, that, that is really, uh, that got me right <laughs> yeah. off the bat. So the, these experiences are more vivid um, the the rarer they are or the I guess the more novel they are so the, like the first time I see something so going into medicine uh, as a medical student everything was was new and just so vivid that essentially it blurs my ability to tell the difference between my uh, internal subjective reality and objective kind of physical reality mm. so um, I as a, as a medical student on my internal medicine rotation, for the first time, I was sitting in the workroom 
with uh, with my attending, and this code blue alarm goes off, and the code blue alarm means a cardiac arrest. So my attending runs out of the room, and I kind of chase after her as like the eager medical student to learn kind of my my first emergency, what I'm supposed to do. And this patient happens to be right around the corner in a waiting room, actually, so totally unexpected. And um, as I walk into the room, I see his wife kind of in the corner just in horror, and this man is on the ground, and he's already getting compressions. And in my body, my brain is essentially recreating this man's experience as if it's physically happening to me. So I feel the feeling of linoleum on my back. I feel the compressions of chest, uh, mm. compressions on my chest as if, as if it were happening to me. I feel the sensation of the breathing tube being slid down his throat as if it's being slid down the back of my throat. Um, and as he is dying, I, I feel this kind of hollow slipping sensation in my own body wow. as if I am, I am also kind of, as if I am dying as well, uh, but I am not because I am aware of my physical body. But at the same time, I'm just so absorbed in the experience of this man and kind of my brain kind of blurring this line between my body and that other person's body. And I essentially just have to step away and I go to the nearest bathroom and actually threw up because of the this severe reaction. I had to take time to just look in the mirror and kind of ground myself back into my own physical body, focusing on the sensation of my toes in my socks, my clothes on my shoulders, my tongue in my mouth, and just remind myself, this is my body. Mm. And that was kind of one of the first experiences where I knew that this was going to be something that I was going to have to work through as I saw more patients. And um, it was something that I saw as, as, a, as a challenge to say that if I'm going to be helping people, that I need to really be able to get a better handle over over this experience and be able to kind of ground myself in my own body. Um, but yeah, the, the Meritut's synesthesia, you know, it's, um, I consider myself one of the lucky ones with Meritut's synesthesia. Uh, it was only until I was able to kind of harness this trait uh, that I was able to become a better doctor. But a lot of other Meritut's synesthetes haven't been able to strike that kind of a balance. Um, hmm, there's just imagine, one woman yeah. uh, in, um, in Texas who, has Meritut synesthesia, and she actually has become a shut-in, essentially, avoiding all people. She doesn't even own a dining room table because she just can't stand the sight of seeing somebody eat in front of her. And uh, other Meritut synesthetes, while they uh, are not housebound, uh, they do require long periods of isolation to kind of balance out these overwhelming kind of synesthetic sensations. Mm. So how are but, you integrating it then how, so well? Well... I mean, for me, it. I think it. One of the things uh, was that it drew me into medicine and and kind of helped to shape me as a doctor. I mean, I've had these experiences since, uh, since I was a child. I mean, as as a kid, I can remember, you know, watching TV and and when the Roadrunner sticks his tongue out, I feel like my tongue is sticking out. If Wiley Coyote gets hit <laughs> by a truck, I feel like I'm hit by a truck. I mean, I had, even had a chance to feel what it's like to be a golden girl, you know. <laughs> but. Uh, in uh, my first year in medical school is when I first learned that synesthesia was even a thing, let alone that my entire sensory world was different from other people. And um, a lot of it was learning about myself. You know how they say, know thyself? Well, I really dove into the neuroscience of it and tried to get a sense of, okay, so I had this experience. What's behind it? What What's making my brain tick? And in the process, I learned so much about kind of what makes us human and, and about how the brain works. And uh, as I was going through these really intense experiences in the hospital, it became clear that I had to really um, draw into the to, into the present moment, really drawing into the sensations that were going on 
around my body and in my body. Mm. So as an example, um, there's uh, if, if I'm in the middle of a, of a patient emergency, for example, I have to focus in on a part um, of my body or look at a place that doesn't look like a person or doesn't have an emotion, like a collar or a sleeve. I mean, I still remember as a medical student uh, being in the trauma bay and uh, a man was brought in um, who um, had been found on a train track. And uh, I walk into the room without knowing much information. And I immediately feel uh, on my left arm kind of like a missingness in my arm, but also kind of like some tattered feeling of like sinews. And I look in front of me and there's a man on a stretcher and on his right arm, because it's mirrored, um, there's there's a towel and, and um, it was moved away. And I saw that he actually had, had the arm was amputated. And to my left, just a, a few inches away from me was actually his hand uh, sitting on a tray. And at that point, I just have to really... Uh, so I wasn't overwhelmed. I just focused on the what's called the omni cell, which is where all the the instruments are stored. And there was that kind of strong sense of kind of artificial order. Uh, and I just looked at the labels and all the different tubes. And I took a moment to just kind of be grounded back in my own body before diving in, so I could help this 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 person. Mm. So, you know, throughout the book, there's a lot of references to. Um, your inner self and the development of that and how this, uh, so it's, it's a funny thing because for some people, this, this is a trial in their lives to have this condition. But for you, it's been a, a boon and you've seen it as such. And, and I think work with it, which is, is, is the most amazing part of the story. But in, in one just I want to read a little something from the book that I found interesting and um, and, and directed into our inner selves and, and the work that we can do uh, to help each other. Um, the mirrored sensations recreated a mirrored experience, which became a hyperbolic replacement for empathy, which in turn became an unrelenting engine for profound compassion a, compulsor, a compulsory drive towards kindness. At times it was almost impossible for me to discern whether my acts of kindness were in response to the need of the patient or to cease the echoed pains and discomfort I felt within myself. Given the circumstances of my training, however, rather than writhe in this phys psychic anguish, anguish, I assumed that we were one and the same. That was acceptable enough. Just talk about, yeah, so there's a lot of inner workings going on with you. Uh, you. That's why I love this because of your willingness to work with this as a positive thing in order to change yourself and, and be able to, to, to be uh, of even more service in, in your work. Yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of um, the work that I had to do was really um, mental, just kind of diving in mind and figuring out kind of what was what was perception, what was real, and then kind of uh, teasing it apart. And um, you know, the the experience of empathy is, uh, you know, empathy if we were to define it is kind of the uh, the ability to or the capacity to understand or feel the the mental state of another person. Um, and because of this mirror touch synesthesia, um, it's kind of like I'm reflectively flung into a very, very vivid experience of that person. I'm basically being put in the other person's shoes. Um, but then it's really up to me to, um, 
to not just kind of walk a mile in those shoes, but also to explore my, my reactions, my, my physical and mirrored experiences, and to reason through them, and then to ask questions, you know, not to assume that because I feel this, uh, this echoed sensation in me that I, I, I assume what the other person is feeling, I still have to ask mm. and, and figure through it. I mean, uh, so the, the mirror touch synesthesia um, helps me uh, clinically um, by, help, by helping with clinical cues, but also emotional cues. So in the clinical side, um, I was consulted one day to see a young woman with cerebral palsy. And because of her cerebral palsy, she, she can't talk. And she is developmentally delayed, meaning that she has um, cognitive impairment. So she really can't communicate at all. And she's in the hospital. And one day she wakes up just agitated, just really combative, swinging at her nurses and her nurses' aides. And the team that's taking care of her, they consult me, the neurologist, to come in and give her a sedative, something to calm her down. And as I, as I walk into her room, I feel the mirrored sensations of you know, the beads of sweat on her face. I feel the strands of hair stuck to her forehead as if they're on my forehead. I feel the kind of the furrowed brow as if it's on my body. But then there's this other feeling uh, of a mirrored chest rising faster than my own breaths. And there's this other kind of very subtle, almost negligible feeling of uh, mirrored kind of shoulder muscles activating up and down. And this is all just... Uh, very at the at a very subtle level, but it's something that I have to take a moment to kind of cue in cue, cue into essentially. And for me, it was realizing, okay, I'm not having um, any issues with with my physical chest, but there's something here, and I should explore it. And I ended up making the decision to trust my body, to trust this mirror touch anesthesia. And I recommended a special test, and it turns out that she had blood clots in her lungs. Mm. And it was something that I don't think without the merit of synesthesia, I would have been able to to catch early enough. And had I just chosen to ignore the mirrored sensation, I would have I, I would have missed that as well. Mm-hmm. On the emotional side, I know I had this one patient who had come into the hospital with uh, with double vision. And it turned out um, uh, that he almost had what could have been a very devastating stroke and an important blood blood vessel in his brain that would have left him what we call locked in where he only would have been able to move his eyes up and down, and that's it. So we were able to help him, and he was able to walk out of the hospital. And as I'm seeing him in the clinic in follow-up, you know, he his, he's changed his diet. He's exercising every day. All of his labs are, are just perfect. Uh, and as I'm congratulating him, he's kind of giving off this sense of joy. But at the same time, the joy that I'm feeling in my physical body is different from the joy that I typically feel in other people. It feels almost forced. And so I take the moment to reason through that and I decide to press him on it. And I, I said, how are you really doing? And he just breaks down crying. Hmm. And it turns out that he'd been depressed, anxious, just kind of tortured by the fear that he was going to have another stroke. He's described himself as a dead man walking. Oh. And because of that, we were able to have a more earnest conversation, put together a plan, and eventually his quality of life improved. Um, and that's the sort of thing that MRI tests can't tell you, lab tests can't tell you, a standard physical exam can't tell you. And it's really kind of have, being willing and open to kind of engage in the experience of the other person, but then also engage in my own reactions to that experience so that I'm not in so much distress that I can't respond. And responding, you know, for me as a physician can sometimes mean prescribing a medication, but more often than not is really just asking questions, just being curious about the experience of another person, 
giving the other person's experience enough worth that it's 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 really valuable to go in and learn more about who they are, what's motivating them, what are their past experiences, are they angry? And if they say that they're angry, why are they angry? Understanding why another human being like me is doing or saying what, what they are. Hmm. Um, and only then can I actually understand what can I what I can do. Hmm. And a lot of patients uh, really appreciate it. Just to, ha- to have a doctor who's who's present there, who's making eye contact, who... Um, who is sharing in a little bit of their pain and suffering. I mean, being being a patient in the hospital, if, if you've been sick or know someone's sick, you know that it can be so lonely. And so having someone who can be there with you, even for a moment, can make all the difference in medicine. Well, boy, there should be more of you out there. You ought to <laughs> duplicate yourself. <laughs> Jesus. What do your colleagues think of some of this? Like like that particular thing where you... you uh, told them to do this particular test and it came out, you know, uh, in a way that um, really probably saved that person's life. What do they, what do they think of this? <laughs> you know, I, I, I usually don't talk about it and I don't mm. bring it up as, as a part of my reasoning. Um, uh-huh. Right. Um, I just, but I, they I know, they have no idea that, that, well, it's only been until recently that I've been open about it. It's uh-huh. been kind of like a second coming out for me, honestly. Um, you know, for me, as as both a researcher and a physician, uh, have you know, data is is kind of the coin of the realm with with my colleagues mm, <laughs> in yeah. scientific publications, and so I I kind of did my due diligence and. Uh, learning as much as I could about synesthesia and mirror synesthesia specifically, going through the methods and every experiment and kind of deciding, okay, is this something that I feel confident in? And eventually one day I felt confident enough in the in all these studies that I felt comfortable enough mm-hmm. opening up about it, not knowing how people were going to respond because it's, it's not an easy thing to explain and it's not an easy thing to grasp and not an easy thing to believe. And so the, the re- immediate reaction is used that this person is crazy or this is full of it. And so I, you know, I wanted to be respected right, <laughs> among right, my colleagues right. coming up in my career. But at, at this point, with the, the amount of research that there is around it, um, I felt comfortable sharing my story. And I even wrote about it. And I've been so pleasantly surprised with how, how uh, open my colleagues have been to talking about it and how fascinated they are to mm, learn more about the bad. neurology and the science around it. And um, it's just, it's just, it's been very, it's been very nice, and also engaging in conversations about empathy and compassion that we wouldn't normally have. Mm. Um, I have physicians reaching out to me saying, you know, now I have to rethink all of my past patient experiences now, because um, <laughs> it really, it really helps to reframe a lot of this. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that um, I've learned in the process of of kind of researching uh, about myself, essentially, was you know how how self-relatedness is important in this process of empathy for all of us and how we all have the hardwiring and the programming for empathy in us. We all have this capacity. And I think that's one of my, my hopes with, with this book is that people will not just learn more about how the brain works and about mirror synesthesia, but also how to develop their own heightened, more engaged sense of empathy. To me, this um, idea of a radical empathy doesn't necessarily mean more empathy. It means a more engaged mm. empathy, mm-hmm. really being um, willing to and, and motivated to learn more about another person and to process your own experiences in your own body uh, th- that are going through. It's almost like it's a, it's another sense. Uh, you know, we, we have 
sight, hearing, touch, and smell. But you know, what about all these other uh, processes that are going on in our brain that we're not taking advantage of? Mm-hmm. And if we engage in these things, we're essentially reprogramming our brain like we do when we learn how to play the violin or when we learn how to juggle. And we can we can make it um, second nature to be able to kind of navigate from this high kind of empathic state to compassion and then acting on it in a form of kindness. Mm. The, the, here's some stuff that I think everyone would be good to share uh, for everybody listening. Uh, this you talk uh, like pruning. It's also possible that an above average executive function helps regulate the chatter of thoughts and emotions. Well, I think 100% of us that are listening and they're out there could use that. Maybe you can talk about uh, cognitive, I think it's around cognitive flexibility. So mm. Talk about that uh, a little bit. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, the, the the frontal lobes are, um, at least the, the, the brain cells that we find in the frontal lobes are tied to all these other networks uh, around the rest of our brain. But um, essentially the, the, what we see is that uh, things like, associating new ideas to, to old ones or being able to regulate our own behavior are all tied to this executive functioning that we call. Um, and it, I kind of see it almost like, um, like, uh, Samson's hair because it's kind of the, the, the source of immense strength, but also great weakness. Um, cause it, when we are sleep deprived, when we drink alcohol, when we are stressed, it's usually the first thing that goes, um, and we, we lose control of the ability to, to regulate our own behavior, um, which is why things like, uh, you know, when, when I'm under a lot of stress, um, I work on balancing a lot of this empathy with with resilience, almost at a one-to-one ratio, kind of building up my reserves for it. And that means a very simple checklist of basic th- self-care things like, am I sleeping enough? Am I eating regularly? Am I drinking enough water? Because all those little things make such a big difference in our ability to process the world around us, to reason through our world, to kind of regulate through our own emotions and, and experiences. Um, and then meditation is is huge. Um, to be able to take a moment to just let those regulatory mechanisms kind of uh, take hold. I mean, there's a lot of research, as you know, um, that shows that the connectivity of uh, of our brain changes when we meditate more regularly, and the areas that tend to to uh, to kind of blossom are those areas that help to regulate our behaviors and our emotions. And when it comes to um, caring for other people, um, the part of our brain that helps us kind of love chocolate, you know, the reward and reinforcement stuff. Mm. Well, when we do compassion meditations, like uh, the the loving kindness meditation we're essentially reprogramming so that way when we have this experience of relating to the other uh, we tie that to the potential reward of helping another person and so more more willing to act in kindness and to be more altruistic overall Mm. i mean it's just amazing yeah uh, i i think you must know who sharon salzberg is Yes, yes. So Sharon is, is on Be Here Now Network. She's a very, very old friend of, of mine and Ram Dass's, uh And uh, she is probably the strongest com- um, um, reflector of loving kindness in Buddhist uh, meditation. And uh, interestingly enough, so you know, I've done a lot of, sittings with her and she teaches at these retreats we have in uh, Maui and so on 
and I and she knows me quite well, and I always have a problem. I always tell her I just can't, I can't get to that loving kindness thing. I mean, I uh, somehow my brain just mm. it's just something um, refuses to open in the way that one needs to open, and um, so you know what? Thanks for that little statement that you just made. <laughs> about the retraining of the of uh, the neurons there so that the proclivity happens on its own towards being, yeah i mean there was some it's really important there was some research done at the university of, of wisconsin with uh, richie davidson's group yeah. um specifically helen wang was the person who did this research looking at loving kindness and altruism and changes in the brain and the intervention that they did the meditation was just half an hour every day for two weeks and just after two weeks they found big changes in altruism and also in, in the brain. So it's just pretty phenomenal. And some of the other really fascinating work that's been done about kind of how our brain perceives our own body and the bodies of other people um, shows something similar. So there's this one group um, that looked at the use of virtual reality mm. to kind of enhance this sense of relatedness. And what they do is um, they put you in, they, you know, they strap you onto this VR system and in the, v the virtual reality world, the avatar that you're in, the body that you're in, yeah. looks nothing like you. And so when they just have you walk in front of a mirror and you look in the mirror. So let's say I'm a, I am a white woman with blonde hair and I'm looking in the mirror. I'm actually seeing an older black man. <laughs> and, and just having mm -hmm. um, that experience alone increases the amount of positive thoughts that you have to the out group, the people that you don't look like. I mean, it's part of our, you know, we're, we're, we're very tribal. We evolved to be very social and be very loyal, essentially, to the people who physically look like us. <laughs> and that's part of the stuff that we don't know about. And so mm. the more that we're able to see those that don't look like us as us, the more we're able to find what similarities we have. Even if it's just they have a nose, I have a nose. They have eyes, I have eyes. They have parents, mm. I have parents the more your brain begins to see them as an extension of your own body mm -hmm. and is more willing to be generous and kind to, to those people. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a prescription for all of us, right, to work through that. Um, it's and... a really, it's not easy. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it can be a really painful process, especially if the person that you're looking at holds ideas that... Um, you don't agree you, with. Yeah, you don't agree with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's the thing that's key is, you don't have to agree with another, what another person is saying to be able to be kind or generous to them. Mm -hmm. There is some difficulties in this country right now uh, around that uh, the polarization uh, that yeah. we are going through. I, I can't tell you how many podcasts I've been doing this year with all of our people, our friends and our teachers and so on, talking about just this subject. Um, so... Uh, I think it's real important, and and it all is very difficult, and it does need practice, and that's uh, you know very much. I mean, some of the things you're speaking of, you haven't said the word yet, but they certainly revolve around mindfulness. Oh uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I, I call this whole experience a compulsory mindfulness. For yeah, me. for you. <laughs> yeah, it's because it, it, I have to have that degree of engagement in in kind of my internal and external world mm. all the time to kind of to filter through it. Yeah. Um, as best as I can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think the executive functioning is what's really key in helping to regulate that reaction. You know, we, we don't have control over how, how other people act or what they do. 
uh, we can't control how they respond to us, but we can control our own internal reactions to the world around us. I mean, that's some of the work that's been done by uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett. I don't know if you're familiar with her, no. but um, she is a psychologist out of Northwestern, and uh, she recently wrote a book about how emotions are made, kind of summarizing a lot of her work around emotions. It's just, it's just fascinating. Um, kind of, it, it's a new look at, at, at emotions, but essentially, it's mm. thinking that these emotions aren't kind of a the same emotions in everybody. Like there isn't a single blueprint for mm. emotions and there's not a single part of the brain that houses fear or houses disgust. Mm. Um, really, uh, what our brain is doing is uh, kind of responding or kind of creating um, our responses to the world around us that are taught to us. Uh, we're taught what, what fear is. We're taught yeah. what happiness is. And that's what we're, we're, we're enacting. Mm. And I feel like that just, it just, really underscores the how much control we can actually have around these responses and, and sometimes it's a matter of and ironically letting go and surrendering kind of the attachment that we have yeah. to, to these feelings so that way we can actually kind of get back into a more pleasant Neutral, and a yeah. state of mind yeah yeah right hey talk about uh, there's a couple of, you talk a little bit about your some of the adventures you've had in your life and uh, talk about. I, I was really taken by this. Uh, talking about the uh, Kayapo, an indigenous tribe in uh, in the Amazon rainforest, and the way and their reactions and how. I mean, it was fascinating yeah. how different they were. But talk about that trip and and. Uh, yeah. So when I was an undergrad, um, I went on uh, an expedition to the Amazon rainforest with a small group of of other researchers. And what I was uh, interested in uh, was looking at kind of contamination of mercury in their river and their water supply that had come from gold mining. Mm. Um, and my, my research ended up kind of getting more into what their perceptions were and how they kind of related to the world around them. Um, but the this group, the Kayapo, it's in central Brazil in this place called uh, Gorochide. So they live on a reserve. And uh, one of the things that I found just really striking is that to them, things like pain are hilarious. Uh, so one day I was I was going uh, I was in a wooden canoe uh, going down the river, and I see this woman uh, kind of coming down uh, like a really steep riverbank, and she's got like a basket full of Brazil nuts, and she slips and she tumbles down. As an older woman, and my reaction is, "Oh my God, I need to go and help this woman." But then all along the riverbank, everyone is just laughing hysterically, and so is the woman. She is laughing hysterically at the at the bottom. That's so weird. Um, and at one point, uh, you know, I, I played soccer with them and I like ended up spraining my ankle and they all thought it was the most hilarious thing. I'm like here, like holding my ankle. And they, they're, they, it's like the, I just told like the funniest joke. Um, and it, so the, the idea of kind of changing kind of physical internal experiences into something external was just amazing. But then they also do the reverse, too. Um, so uh, emotions like like sorrow, for example, uh, when. When a mother loses a son, um, they have a, a grieving ritual, and one of those grieving rituals involves self-inflicted pain. Mm. Um, so, so there's this one woman I met who, uh, her son, when she had when when he had died, she took a machete and was whacking her head with this machete, and so she had these like really deep scars all along her her scalp, and you know the the feeling of those scars were kind of reflected on 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 my own body as well as I was um, talking to her, um, but it's kind of like a way of translating this kind of really nebulous kind of squishy internal sensation into something physical to to make more sense of it and to let it heal to have the kind of an external representation of something as it heals 
and it works also for love too. I mean, when 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 you're in love with someone, if you're a kayapo, you scratch the shoulder of the person that you're in love with, and so watching uh, watching couples walk around, I would see just like really deep scars in their shoulder because the harder you scratch, the more you love the person. Oh my god! <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. Well, when they la- when you turned your ankle or you sprained your ankle and they started laughing, didn't you go, "Hey, what's up?" <laughs> well, my my first reaction was. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> but then immediately it was like, how fascinating, how interesting. You know, I think one of the things that has kind of been built into, you know, baked into to me as a person has been this deep-rooted curiosity for the world around me. And so whenever something happens, I think my my first instinct is to say, that's interesting, and to explore mm. a little further. And I find that it just diffuses the most distressing situations mm. Someone could say something really offensive, but if I start out by saying that's interesting, I'm immediately back in control of the situation. And it's not, it's not, it's not a, they're not an aggressor in my mind so much as another human being. And that is worthy of me exploring kind of where things came from, why they said what they did. And oftentimes that process of getting to know the story of another person can really unite you with, with another human being. Hmm. There's another little part uh, that I wanted to point to. Um, I'll just read a little. Hopefully I'll get this pronounced right. So the subjective experience of the ego or the self can also be affected through its very dissolution. Mirror touch, mirror touch synesthetes, synesthetes, synesthesia, <laughs> synesthetes. Myself included, (laughs) report that when we are completely consumed by synesthetic associations, the boundaries of who we are disintegrate. There's a sense of oneness with our surroundings, a borderless existence where it is often impossible to tell where our bodies end and the external world begins. Uh, That's uh, that's, uh, quite a... A statement and further you talk while the idea of ego dissolution and precognition can evoke images of psychics and mediums delicately fingering their temples we can at least speculate that the synergy of fiona and i'd like you to talk about this of mm-hmm. fiona who's in the book synesthesia uh we can at least uh, and perhaps a natural slant to notice novel information allowed her to attend to subtleties imperceptible to others. She could then access the information in the context of her existing memories, which allowed her to recognize a pattern as the brain dictates. She attributed her own meaning to the pattern, which she translated into action with a positive outcome. Whether the experience was mystical or nothing more than a lucky presumption becomes less relevant. Regardless of how her actions were derived, she saved a life, and any act of healing is miraculous. So talk a little bit about her, but also this ego dissolution uh, mm, concept. Yeah. So um, Fiona is another mirror-touch synesthete that I have. She was actually the first mirror-touch synesthete that I met, uh, which was a fascinating experience to begin with. It was like meeting an estranged family member that you hadn't known, um, and you were just meeting for the first time. We were just kind of eyeing each other, trying to figure out who, who each, other, each of us was. Uh, 
in the process of getting to know her, I was just um, so surprised to see that there was so much overlap in our experiences. And this is something that happens a lot with, with, synest- with synesthetes and meritage synesthetes specifically. Uh, we, a lot of your childhood experiences are colored very similarly. Um, and one of those experiences um, that, that we share is this idea of the ego dissolution. And, you know, it, it's funny that it, those words, ego dissolution, because for, at a lack for for more concrete words or other words, that's what we go for. And so we we kind of know what we're talking about. Um, I remember when I first brought it up with the, with the, with the neuroscience researcher, I was kind of, I felt kind of sheepish about it because I was like, Oh, he's just going to think this is so weird. And so I was like, yeah, when I'm around a large group of people with all the sensations and things going on, it's like, there's this dissolution of the ego and he kind of like rolled his eyes. Um, but as more and more, I talked to more and more synesthetes about it. It is a really similar experience. And um, now that we know more about marital synesthesia, it does make sense that this mental map that we have of ourselves, kind of this awareness of kind of where we are in space, gets blurred as we're looking at other people and other things. So for uh, for marital synesthetes who have this mirrored experience to not just people, but to, to things, it's almost like this um, mental map of where my arm, where my right arm is and my left arm is kind of goes away and blends in with everything around me. So if I'm looking at um, not just a person, but looking at like the Statue of Liberty, for example, I feel like uh, my my arm is one of my uh, my arms is raised. I feel like I'm carrying a, a book in a hand. I feel like I'm wearing a gown and I have a crown in my head. Um, and then it kind of goes the, the experience becomes less vivid, the less um related to this, the less it looks like a human being, but, but it still happens. So if I look at a lamppost, I feel like my neck is long and my head is up at the top like a lamppost. Or if I look at a glass of water, I feel like uh, there's water kind of sitting around my face. So there's this kind of this intimate kind of uh, experience of the ego um, moving out of the body into the, to the, to the world, basically placing my mental body map in, into everything I'm looking uh, around me. And that, one of the things that I had to learn over the last few years was actually how to navigate between the other and, and the self. And I feel like I've finally gotten a, a better handle over it. So that way I can always um, find the right place to kind of be w- within my own body and kind of the, the, the outside. Have you ever contemplated in terms of karma and reincarnation, which is, is part of, fabric of my life because of my meeting with uh, this amazing being with Ramdas all those years ago. So I'm just, I'm hearing all of this and I'm, I'm looking at you and going, I wonder what is the karma to have this, to be born into this incarnation with this particular, uh, with synesthesia? I mean, have you ever thought of that? Um, I've thought of it a couple of times. I don't, I don't know. And I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I see it as a teacher. You know, it's, it's just this, it's, it's a part of who I am. It's part of my body. And um, I, it's kind of taught me so much through really harsh lessons, but also some really beautiful lessons as well. I mean, sure. If I, if I see someone in pain, um, I reflect that pain in me and that can be really uncomfortable. But at the same time, I can also feel what it's like to be hugged by another person just by looking at someone being hugged. It, seeing uh, a baby feels amazing to feel that young again. Um, so I get to feel so much love and beauty in the world and I get to just feel so connected with, with everything around me. 
you know, I don't know whether there was something, um, you know, some, some reasoning or some kind of, um, some, some design behind it, but I, 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 I just exist in it because this is, this is part of me. Mm, well, I'm sure there is absolutely a design in it. And, and it's that inner guru teacher here, you know, that that represents because look at, look at what it has done and look at what you are able to offer to people. Uh, it's, it's, it's just pretty amazing. Um, yeah, there, I, it is kind of like an, it really is like an inner guru. I mean, I think since my childhood, it's, it's, I've had to really dedicate a lot of my my attention to almost kind of a monastic degree of dedication to the discipline of you know, the physical and mental labor of sorting through kind of my internal and my ex- external sensory worlds. Mm. Um, and it's I, it's, I feel like it's really shaped me for the better. Mm. Um, there's another little part of the book. Sometimes I'm picking this a little out of context, but uh, mm. I do the best. While we may not all be yogis on a mountainside... <laughs> Who can elicit who can elicit this relaxation response with a mere thought, which I have definitively <laughs> experienced? We can at least breathe. Um, reflecting on the nuances nuances of our breath or acknowledging our sensory experiences is as experience is as much a contemplative practice as meditation or yoga. This is the built-in beauty of mindfulness. It can be just as easy to be mindful as it is to be mindless. Uh, We have all the hardware and software we need to be able to tap into a contemplative practice that will allow us a greater locus of control over our mind and the ability to select our response to whatever occurs in our external or internal experience. Well written and well said, doctor. Uh, and particularly, uh, we, we can at least breathe. Yeah. That, uh, and I, um, we're doing an online course right now called life and balance. Just trying to, with all these Jack, Sharon, Joseph, all the Ram Dass, all Mm. these teachers, uh, just, how day to day to interact with your life, with with phenomena and uh, circumstances and people and situations, in a more conscious manner that will, you know, cause more happiness and less suffering. And um, and I did a a, a live Q and A last night, and uh, a, and a number or a couple of questions at least were around, okay, you know, what do you do in a trauma situation, you know, a traumatic, suddenly something really happens, you hear something, there's a physical something that happens, or what do you do even if if there is, um, your mind is just run on so deeply and you are caught in this cycle of dark thoughts, just that. And, uh, you know, so what do you do then? And uh, there's something that Sharon developed called pause practice and Mm. and i said the breath that's what we have as a tremendous advantage to pull ourselves out of of these kinds of situations is to take a deep breath into the center of your chest and get out of you know the run-on thoughts or or get Mm -hmm. out of the uh, excitement and the the blow up that that you might find yourself in and and the breath so I, that's why i loved you i love oh, this yeah, little bit that's amazing yeah you know it's um that's something that i i teach um the, the the residents and the medical students that i work with it's this pause 
you know, there's this, there's this whole spectrum of mindfulness, and I feel like at the very kind of beginning, like you can start with with the breath in in surgery. Uh, before you start, there's this thing uh, called the pause for the cause, uh-huh. um, where you, you, everybody stops what they're doing, reviews who the patient is, what part of the body is being operated on, uh, what, what procedures being done, and anything that any that anybody should know, any questions that are uh, that are around. And it's it's just a brief pause, and I find that the breath is is so at the core of that. It's almost like um, it's like the the kill switch, or it kind of, it's just like yeah. it, <laughs> no matter what's going on, the breath will always be there. You have to breathe. Um, and that, that can just change everything just by focusing on the breath, um, and kind of moving up along that spectrum. Um, and I think this is kind of one of the things that I I think is so important to, for people to, to realize is that, um, no matter how skeptical you are of meditation or things that are spiritual, there's something there for all of us that, and, and there's, there's so much science behind a lot of this. It's, it really is accessible for, for, for those that, that need the science to really be able to, to be open to it. But for, for people who don't need the science, there's, there's plenty there. Um, but from breathing to simply just walking in nature, just surrounding yourself with nature can really begin to put you into this more mindful state. Just be looking at the sky, looking at a leaf um, can help tons. And then as you move up along that spectrum of contemplative practices, you get into things like you know, journaling and riding a bike, running, kind of focusing on how you like fold your clothes to mindful eating to to sitting meditation and then getting into the more engaged process of going through your thoughts while you're in that meditated state. Yeah. And and I think just like anybody who's beginning to learn an instrument like the piano, if, if it's if it's too challenging to rush through learning at, at the at the most advanced level, then start at the most basic thing and that's just breathing. <laughs> I, yeah. you know, breathing is requisite for life. Yeah. So right. Core. So you're, you're already doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's core. Um, there's one other thing. I just, uh, It struck me uh, that I read in the book. I mean, I'm pretty familiar with Sanskrit terms and having lived in, in India uh, and, and spent so much time there, as I still do. Uh, but I never heard this term, okay? This is mm. this kind of a really... And it's uh, another difficult pronunciation. <laughs> Not that it shouldn't be if it's Sanskrit. Uh, anekantavada. Anekantavada. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. And I'm usually good at that stuff. Refers to the multiplicity of viewpoints where truth and reality are perceived differently from diverse points of view. And no single point of view is the complete truth. Where did you bump into that? And yeah, talk about that. Yeah, so this... This idea of the multiplicity of viewpoints, I think, is is core to the, not just to the internal human experience, but to the experience of relating to other other human beings, other brains, and uh, you know the world around us. Without our brain, is just it's just a like blob, just waiting to happen, and we are each creating kind of the fullness and the vividness of, of our world within our set through our senses and through how we perceive through our past experiences, how we act and interact with the world. And within each of us, the lenses that we use or the viewpoint that we use uh, can be so different from another person. And without acknowledging that we can get, we can fall into some really deep assumptions. Like for me, I assume that everybody had the experiences that I was having. I assumed that everybody had synesthesia, that everybody had ex- experiences of colors with sounds and colors with letters, that everybody physically felt what they, they saw um, in the world around them. Mm-hmm. People who are colorblind, for example, um, 
as a more literal example, a lot of them don't know that they're colorblind until they somebody asks or, or, or until they somebody realizes that they are in fact seeing the world differently. That the, that the red light at the at the traffic stop actually looks more orange to them, but to them, that color that they're seeing is still called red. It's just perceived very differently, mm-hmm. and it builds a whole other world. So I think unless unless we are inside the body of another person, unless we are the other person, we are going to be so different from each other, which is why it's so important to get to know who, who people are, what's what's going on in their brain, what's going on in, what's going on in their past that's led to who they are now. Because um, we can't fall into that trap of thinking that everybody should know better, that, that there's a yeah. thing asked in sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I would just add, start with getting to know ourselves better oh, first. Yeah. That mm. that is, uh, but uh, seeing the world with a new perspective is possible. Yeah, it's so scary how uh, oh, it can be very scary when you begin to realize how much of an illusion our our perception of reality is. Everything that you think is is extremely certain is is very uncertain at the same time. Even even if you think about the physics of it, I mean. The majority of when you're looking at a table, the majority of that table is just empty space. Mm. But it, and uh, again, I'm back to because I'm involved with this course on a day-to-day basis, and one of the uh, one of the first and most important uh, tenets uh, that we're trying to uh, deliver is around perspective. So that's why mm-hmm. seeing the world with a new perspective is possible, oh, yeah. uh, and it's a perspective that uh, that we're uh, prescribing. Uh, around uh, not your roles, not your thoughts, not your emotions, but it's a perspective coming from a place, uh, Ramdas likes to call it uh, loving awareness, a loving mm. awareness place from from the middle of your chest, from your spiritual heart, which is not a physical place. Yeah. Uh, and that once you're in that place, then... Uh, mindfulness and awareness you you are not in the judgmental place of of looking subject object at yourself you're in a place where you're lovingly accepting yourself and then once you can do that then you have a far better chance of doing it with everybody else around you and in these days as i mentioned earlier in this uh, in the podcast how difficult are these days for us with the country yeah. in its uh, in a division the way it, the way it is and and um, shall we just say some of our leaders uh, who are not in a very empathetic um, frame of mind and uh, that's causing a lot of uh, pain and suffering and um, how the only way this this can change is is changing our perspective. I mean, I, you know, this is, it's tough on a day-to-day basis for all of us to not think of them as other. And so your experience, your synesthesia is, uh, and the way you've documented it here, I think goes a long way to showing people um, that there is another perspective. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm really yeah. happy you wrote this, uh, Joel. Yeah. Yeah, the, you know, the way I think about it is everyone that I call they or the other is is myself. Everybody that is they is us. They are us. We are this part of this species. We are so interrelated uh, that it's something that you you just have, if, if you just reflect on it, it really helps to 
change that perspective by by substantial degree. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much for being here. This has been enlightening, to say the very least. Uh, oh, thank you very much for inviting and, me. This has been so much fun. Yeah, and uh, and the book. I mean, there's so many. I didn't get into any of the many, many different experiences you've had with different patients and how you've related with them and how they have uh, transformed in many different ways. So it's it's a very rich book. Mirror Touch, Joel Salinas, S-A-L-I-N-A-S. Again, go up to Amazon and use our link to go ahead and purchase the book. And... Uh, uh, you know, gee, let's keep in touch a little bit. Uh, I think we have a lot of cross-references here that we probably didn't even get into. Uh, but again, thank you. And uh, everybody out there, this is Raghu from Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and you can stream the podcast or go and uh, and just go up to iTunes and subscribe. We'll see you next week.